All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Timothy. In this recording, we're going to be looking at the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. It's really the first large section of the letter, but we broke it into two for just the sake of time on the podcast. And it all revolves around Paul's charge to Timothy to really faithfully carry out his ministry. So let's recall where we're at in the flow of this paragraph before we jump into the new details in chapter 1, verse 12. And so in the first half of this section, 1, 1 through 11, Paul called Timothy to charge certain people in the church people who have strayed from the truth of the gospel, to stop doing that, to stop teaching strange, or as we noted, different kinds of doctrines, different kinds of teaching. These particular people are claiming to be experts in the law, but Paul says they're completely ignorant of what they're talking about. And then what Paul did there in um, verses 3 through 11 is he gave a description of who and what the law is actually for. What is the purpose of the law? Who is the law written for? And he noted that when we understand the law rightly, it's in sync with sound teaching and it's in sync with the gospel. And then at at that point, Paul says that the gospel is the very thing that God entrusted him with. That's where we left off. And so that's where we pick up here, because it's that mention by Paul of being entrusted with the gospel that leads Paul to actually reflect on that fact. And so what we really have in verses 12 through 17 is a little bit of a digression away from the main thrust of the paragraph, which is Paul's charge to Timothy. And so in verses 12 through 17, we get this little bit of a digression where Paul then reflects on how the gospel has been entrusted to him. It's a sacred trust, which leads Paul then to really offer a praise, a doxology to God who made that happen. And then in verses 18 through 20, Paul resumes the charge to Timothy to faithfully carry out his ministry. So let's pick up in verse 12, where we left off. Paul has just said uh, that he has been entrusted with the gospel, and now he reflects on that by saying, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And so here Paul begins this reflection where he's really thanking Christ, thanking King Jesus our Lord. Why? Because King Jesus has strengthened Paul because he considered Paul faithful. And and that all is manifested in putting Paul into service. And so when you get that phrase at the end of uh, verse 12 that says, putting me into service, it's really describing the way in which, the manner in which Christ Jesus demonstrated his, really his trust of Paul. Or as Paul says it here in verse 12, his considering Paul faithful. And so Jesus demonstrated that by putting Paul into service. Even though, verse 13, Paul says, even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. This is Paul's backstory that he's very briefly referencing here, but you can read the details of it in Acts chapters 8 and 9, or you can even listen to uh, the listener's commentary on those chapters as well. In a nutshell, it goes like this. Paul was an up-and-coming star in the ranks of Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, studying under the greatest rabbi of the day, Rabbi Gamaliel. And so he had connections with the Sanhedrin. And so what we learn in in Acts chapter 8 is that Paul was there 
when that Jewish body, the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, stoned Stephen to death. Stephen was the first Christian killed for his faith. Paul was there, and as they got ready to pummel Stephen with rocks, they took off their outer garments, and they laid those outer garments down at the feet of Paul. And so Paul was sort of like the water boy for the, the stoning squad here as they killed Stephen. And Luke tells us in Acts 8 that that precipitated a change in the relationship between the church and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and a great persecution arose as a result of that. And what we learn in Acts 8 and 9 is that Paul, then called Saul, his Jewish name, was uh, really the spearhead of that persecution. And he actually got letters to go all the way up to Damascus, way up to the north, to root out Christians up there, to uh, put them into chains, and to bring them all the way back to Jerusalem to stand trial because of their faith in Jesus. And Paul is referencing that here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, when he describes himself as a blasphemer, that is, a slanderer, because he spoke against Jesus and against uh, Jesus being the Messiah and against the Christians who believed in him. So he was a blasphemer, a slanderer, and a persecutor. That was one who pursued and did harm to followers of Jesus and a violent aggressor. And so this is who Paul was. And he's like, and yet in spite of that, in spite of that, Jesus put me into service. And so Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14 and says, yet I was shown mercy by the Lord, by Jesus, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And so his unbelief led him to act completely ignorantly of the truth, and Jesus was merciful enough to still consider him faithful and to still put him into service. And so he says in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, the grace, grace refers to this undeserved kindness, this favor that you don't deserve, that God stoops down and shows you kindness and favor. And so the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, more than enough, overflowing is the idea, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul actually thought he was doing the right thing. When he says he acted ignorantly in unbelief, he thought he was doing the right thing. He actually says in Galatians chapter 1 that this persecution of Christians, in his mind, was a mark of his zeal for God as he understood him at the time. And so he really was zealous. He really thought he was being faithful to God. And that's why God uh, was willing to say, no, this, this guy, if we can get him pointed in the right direction, he is going to be zealous and faithful for Jesus in the right sort of way. And so God was merciful and gracious to him and entrusted him with the gospel. And so Paul says in verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. For Paul, the fact that he had persecuted the church is regularly, uh, in his mind, viewed as the height of his sin against God. That's what made him the foremost of sinners, that he was a persecutor and a violent aggressor and a blasphemer against Jesus. Um, he had persecuted God's people in, in his blasphemy against Jesus, and thus he is the foremost of sinners. And yet, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so Paul, even though he's the foremost, he was saved because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And so Paul goes on 
in verse 16 and says, Yet for this reason I found mercy. What's the reason? Well, Paul's going to state it, and he's going to state it in terms of sort of an aim, an objective, or a goal. So he says, For this reason I found mercy, so that, with this aim in mind, so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul's like, I was such the foremost of sinner that I kind of become like exhibit A of God's mercy and grace. I become the foremost example of how God and his patience is going to save whoever believes in him. If he could save me, Paul is saying, then certainly he could save you. Certainly he could be merciful and gracious to you. And so Paul views that one of the purposes of God's uh, saving him, even though he was such, in his mind, such a awful sinner, is that God could demonstrate how merciful and patient and gracious he is. Paul actually strikes a similar note in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says this. He says there in Ephesians 3, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Notice Paul describes himself as the very least of all the saints there in Ephesians 3. He's like lower than the the last of the saints. You get to the bottom of the saints, the lowest you could possibly go, go a step down, you'll find Paul. Well, he's really saying the same sort of thing here in 1 Timothy when he says that I was... Uh, because of my opposition to the church and my blasphemy and my persecution of Christians, because of that, I was like the very bottom of the heap. And yet God rescued me and he did so, so that he could demonstrate his perfect patience, his complete patience as an example for anyone else who would believe in him for eternal life. So in view of how merciful and gracious God has been in forgiving him, And in view of how patient and merciful God has been in entrusting him with the gospel, not just forgiving him, but putting him into service, Paul then breaks out into praise to God, into a doxology in verse 17. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this expression, this kind of spontaneous expression of praise to God is motivated by God's mercy and grace and patience in rescuing Paul, putting him into service, and doing so so that other people could believe in him. And therefore, in the flow of thought here, this is a celebration of God's goodness and generosity and greatness in trusting Paul with the gospel. Now, at that point, Uh, Paul's little digression, important digression, and necessary digression for how Paul became who he is, uh, and yet it still breaks the flow of thought. And so at the end of this little expression of praise, we now, in verse 18, return back to the entire purpose of the paragraph, which is Paul's charge to Timothy. And so verse 18 picks up by saying, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. And this word translated command is the same word that was translated instruct 
and instruction up above in the earlier part of the charge. And so we need to make sure we recognize it's the same word so we can hear Paul coming back to that charge, this command, this instruction, this charge I give you. And what Paul is doing is he's beginning to wrap up his opening call to action to Timothy. And what command did he give him? What charge did he give him? Well, what he said in verses 3 and 4 above is that he urges Timothy to instruct or to command. That's the word that we have here for command. That he would command certain people not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And so that's the command that Paul has given Timothy. Now, what he says here in verse 18 is that this command I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. And we don't know a ton about this. Uh, in the same context of urging Timothy to carry out his ministry in a few chapters, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was granted to you through the words of prophecy with the laying on of hands, by the council of elders. And so there in 1 Timothy 4.14, he echoes the same thing said here, the prophecies made about you. We just don't know exactly what that is. Paul notes there in 1 Timothy 4 that it was through the council of elders. We also learn from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, that Paul was apparently a part of this when he says, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. And so, presumably, that's referring to the same event as this event with the Council of Elders. It may not be, uh, but it makes sense that it was. A at any rate, when Timothy was officially commissioned into ministry and set apart for ministry, um, with Paul being there and the council of elders from the church, there were some words of prophecy spoken about him and to him and over him as part of his commissioning to ministry. And so Paul says, in keeping with that, I give you this charge. I give you this command to make sure these people that have strayed from the truth cease teaching strange doctrines to the church there in Ephesus. And so Paul, by mentioning that here, is calling that to mind and doing so really, I think, to encourage and strengthen Timothy for his task. And Paul carries on the thought in the rest of verse 18 and on into verse 19 by saying this. He says that by them, that is by those prophecies, by that encouragement, by recalling those words, you will fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And so this is really urging Timothy to stay faithful, to continue in the fight, continue in the struggle for the cause of the gospel, keeping the faith and keeping a good conscience, being faithful and being true to the calling that he was given, being faithful and true to his commission to ministry and staying the course. Paul then notes at the end of that encouragement to Timothy that not everyone has done that. Some people had faith, they rejected it. And as a result, uh, they have suffered shipwreck. They have ruined, they've you know, run, run afoul of the rocks of their faith and destroyed themselves. And Paul is most likely alluding to some of the very people who are stirring up trouble in the church, some of the false teachers that Timothy is going to have to confront and charge to cease teaching what they're teaching. 
Um, and then Paul actually names a couple in verse 20. And so after mentioning that some have rejected the faith, they've suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, he, he names two, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Look at verse 20. He says, among these, among those who have rejected the faith are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, these are two men who in some way shipwrecked their faith. Hymenaeus is likely the same guy as the one mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, who Paul says there, departed from the truth. And Alexander is probably the same guy as the one mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It's probably those same two guys that get mentioned in both these letters that have stirred up trouble at Ephesus, stirred up trouble for the church. Um, apparently, at some point, they, they were members of the church. They maybe even had some maybe leadership roles in the church. Who knows? But they've got some influence, and uh, they have done a whole lot of harm to, to Paul and to the church. And so Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, we don't really know for sure. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase. Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, and there, this is what he says. Let me read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5, so we can hear how Paul describes it there. He says this, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present with you in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this. He's dealing with a man who is sleeping with his stepmom. Who has, who has so committed this as though I were present. And so there's this handing over to Satan in some sense has to do with judging him and judging what he's doing is wrong. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 5 and says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in the Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that in itself raises all sorts of questions and all sorts of difficulties. But what we do hear from that is that the aim, the objective, is hopefully that somehow um, this act of handing a person over to Satan will lead to their salvation on the day of the Lord. That's the aim. That's the objective, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 5. And so we would assume that's probably the same idea here in um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. So in handing over Hymenaeus and Alexander, what Paul seems to be saying is, I have marked them out as no longer being in Christ, no longer part of the realm of the Spirit, no long, longer part of the kingdom of Jesus. They are on the outside. Um, where Satan is in charge. That seems to be the idea. Handed over to Satan is handed over to Satan's realm, where Satan's ways and Satan's lies and Satan's practices are operative. I've handed them over to that realm so that, hopefully, they will be taught not to blaspheme. So notice the same thing here in uh, 1 Timothy 1.20. As in 1 Corinthians 5, there's this, this redemptive aim of this. Hopefully they'll learn by feeling the social pressure. And in the Mediterranean world of the first century, the nature of society and culture was such that there would be an awful lot of social pressure. If all of a sudden you're no longer part of this group, that would be a very motivating and persuasive sort of experience that would 
motivate change. And that's the hope, is that it'll motivate change, that they will be taught not to blaspheme and no longer continue to teach false ideas. And so Paul has placed these two out of the church, out of the Lord's domain, into Satan's domain, in hopes that they will repent and change their ways. Now, all of that said in the context of calling Timothy to live out his calling, to confront false teachers like these two men, to be faithful to the Lord and to fight the good fight. And that actually sets the tone and the direction for the entire letter of 1 Timothy. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer a couple of reflections. The first is this, and that is the notion of sound doctrine, uh, that there is a body of truth. There is a set of teaching uh, that is in sync with the gospel, that is true. It's the proper way to understand God and his word and his teaching and the gospel. And Paul calls it sound teaching or sound doctrine. And sound means healthy. It's good for us. It's good for human flourishing. It's, it's the thing that actually is going to bring health to us mind, body, and soul, and spirit, right? It's God's way. And so there is sound teaching and sound doctrine, and it must be preserved. It must be upheld. And those who contradict it, those who blaspheme and teach false things, must be rejected and must be dealt with, uh, as Paul does with the two men at the end of this paragraph. And so we must remember, as um, followers of Jesus, as preachers and Bible teachers, that we are going to be held to a standard called sound teaching. And we must work hard to make sure we're understanding that and we're accurately and properly passing that on. The other reflection I want to offer out of this little paragraph is the, the digression. And that is what Paul's example shows us is that the gospel is about rescuing sinners, rescuing people like Paul who... Uh, loved God, but were, was misguided. He, he was sincerely wrong in his understanding of God. And thus, Paul says, he was the foremost of sinner, and yet he was shown mercy and grace. And the gospel is all about that. And so Paul offers his examples, a testimony of grace as a pattern and example of how God rescues sinners. And there's something powerful about that. And so as we pursue sound doctrine, and we try to live in sync with the gospel, we must recognize that the gospel is all about a testimony of God's grace in the life of people like Paul, like Timothy, like you, and like me, that God in his mercy and his grace has shown patience to us and rescued us and forgiven us. And um, by his grace, he's made us a part of his kingdom and he's given us a role to play. He's given us a job to do whatever that might be in his kingdom so that like the apostle Paul, we would have a good testimony of grace that can be an example to others who would believe in Jesus through our testimony. All right, thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary on 1 Timothy. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible by the faithful and generous support of all sorts of people. People giving $5, $10, $20, $50, $100 a month that makes this ministry possible. So thanks a ton 
for your generous support. Thanks a ton for those of you who pray, pray regularly and faithfully for this ministry. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by clicking the link down in the notes below or by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button. It'll take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount, click a little box that says Make This Monthly, and you can set up a monthly or even just a one-time donation right there. Thanks in advance for your support.